0: If you're new, I'm Pastor Brent, it's good to open up the word with you today, so thrilled to be here to do that. Well, uh, William Wilberforce was born in 1759 in Yorkshire, England, during an era of moral decline in England and the American colonies when most churches were preaching a sort of vague deism where God isn't personally involved in the world and it kind of didn't really matter how you lived. That's what the culture was like at that time. Now, many of us, when we think about the 1700s, we, we probably think of, of uh, this imaginary kind of world of the good old days of Christianity. We, we picture maybe everyone as an aristocrat waltzing around in a suit coats and fancy dresses and powdered wigs and English accents, and, and all of them are pious Christians, and, it didn't, uh, and, and they're, they're full of virtue and standing up for what's right. But that picture that's kind of in our minds of what the 18th century was like is a lot more like Hollywood and less like reality. Okay, the 1700s, if you study history, was a really dark time in the history of Christianity. It wasn't until the revivals of Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, George Whitefield, that personal salvation and a radical change of morality took root in England and in America. Now, William Wilberforce was, was, was uh, alive at this time, and, and, and he was raised by his mother and grandfather who were cultural Christians. They didn't have a living faith in Christ. But young William, he remembered spending time with his aunt and uncle, who had come to faith through the ministry of John Wesley. Now, this aunt and uncle were part of a group of evangelistically-minded believers who came to be known around England as the Enthusiasts. They were so enthusiastic about Jesus. That's like, that was their reputation. Their zeal for the gospel made them the enthusiasts in their nation. So this kind of public enthusiasm in the 1700s was viewed as improper for polite society. And so the attitude towards these people was just keep it to yourself, okay? Maybe not that different from some approaches today in our culture. Well, many years later, okay, After Wilberforce had begun a political career, he was serving in Parliament, the Lord grabbed William's heart while on a weeks-long trip with a friend and a Cambridge professor named Isaac Milner. Now, they were on a long carriage ride through Europe and Milner was sharing about Christ on the long hours of, of horse ride through the countryside and he was describing about what faith in Christ was all about. And, and this was a turning point for Wilberforce. He, he returned to his home in England and he had this sudden conviction of his sin and he understood his deep need for forgiveness and to surrender his life to Jesus. Now, he's serving in parliament at this time as I said, and he was participating in this largely corrupt political machine in London, English high society. And so he was was trying to figure out, what should I do now? Should I leave my position? I can't continue to do this game if I'm going to follow Jesus. Should I stay? How do I do that? Can I live with integrity in my commitment to Christ in the midst of this really morally bankrupt culture? He genuinely considered at this time quitting parliament and becoming a priest. Now, he was confused. He needed counsel. So this is what he did. He went to go visit another friend, John Newton. And many of you might know John Newton. He was a a former slave ship captain who had a radical conversion to Christ and was now an an old man. And and he was the rector of St. Mary Wilmoth Church in London. And you might know Newton from his famous hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. You see, Newton knew the depths of sin and the darkness of this world. He had seen it firsthand. He had participated in it. He was one of the ones who did it. And yet he also knew the glorious light of the gospel. That offers full forgiveness through Christ and new birth to people who are a wretch like himself. So this was his advice to Wilberforce when he came to get some counsel. He said, submit to the authority of the state. Stay where you are in your position of influence. Trust fully in Christ. And he said, work as hard as you can to bring the values of the kingdom of God to bear in whatever opportunities God puts in front of you. You are there as a witness for Christ. So Wilberforce, he began to to realize that he was now a foreigner and exile in his own workplace. That... His allegiance had switched. He was now a citizen of heaven, and he had an opportunity to be an ambassador of Christ, being a representative of God's kingdom in the midst of the kingdom of this world. And this is what he did. He spent the next 20 years of his life fighting to abolish the slave trade in England. And he worked every day to bring reforms to laws and the moral character of England and and to bring glory to God in everything that he said and did. He went from being a man who was at home in the world who used his wealth and power to indulge his selfish desires, to a man who placed, understood, he, he, he placed his life for God's purposes and for the good of others and for continuing to serve in the role that he was privileged to have while unswervingly never moving from his Christian convictions. You see, Wilberforce reminds me of the prophet Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, he's a man who entered Babylon and gained a reputation as a man of integrity and wisdom, yet also had boundaries he would not cross even if it cost him his life. And God was faithful to work through Daniel just as he was faithful to work through William Wilberforce. You see, our topic this morning is biblical perspective on civic engagement. And we've been working our way through our foundation series uh, this is the last week, and we've been talking about how we address important issues in the Christian life. And so, this is the concluding week of this series. And next week, we're going to jump right back into John 13 as part of our John series. So, come back for that. We're excited to jump back into the Gospel of John. Well, this topic of uh, civic engagement is so important. Biblically, because if we're not careful, and this is, I guess, the concern, friends, is that we can often our, have our perspective on nations and politics be easily defined by the world's priorities and the world's way of doing things. And we need a distinctly kingdom minded and gospel centered approach. And that's why we're addressing this now, okay? It's why we're addressing this at this point in the series, because we've already addressed questions like what is the gospel? What is the Bible? What is spiritual growth? We have to have a foundation that is centered on Christ and his kingdom before we can start going into these applications, and that's why we're here today. You see, we'll never understand how to engage in the public square as God's holy people, his special possession, until we know the gospel and trust in Christ as the only true Savior and King. Okay. Here's what we're going to do this morning. So we're going to look at three different scripture texts that help us understand a biblical perspective on civic engagement. I know your bulletin or your handout says two. I'm throwing in one more for free, okay? (laughs) All right, so we're going to do three. Now, these texts that we're going to look at, they frame our approach about the nuances and challenges of participating in the public square. And so what we're going to do today, and you'll see it on the screen here, we're going to talk about our posture towards government from 1 Peter chapter 2. Then we're going to talk about the purpose of government from Romans 13. And then lastly, we're going to conclude with an illustration from the early church that describes our perspective on government from Acts chapter 4. So posture, purpose, perspective we got those three P words. It's just great. I did a great job at making sure those all aligned this week. All right, That doesn't always happen. Let's jump right in. Posture towards government. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's going to be in your New Testament here. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, raise your hand. I'd love to have you follow along and read with us. When we look at this letter, as we look at our posture... Peter is writing to Christians who are scattered across the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay? And what he does is he opens his letter. He calls them elect exiles or chosen exiles. That's, that's his name that he gives to them. Now, they aren't literally exiles. They're still living at home. They're still in their own neighborhood. They're still in their own cities. But now, because they belong to Christ and his kingdom, they're now like foreigners in this world. And that's why he calls them that. So listen to what Peter writes to these believers who live in a hostile environment of the Roman Empire and yet belong to a heavenly kingdom. So we're going to read, starting in verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, friends, this passage is a turning point in Peter's letter. This begins his pastoral application. He's kind of been describing the gospel and who we are as the church. And now that he's talked about our living hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. And who the redeemed believers are in the church as God's chosen people in chapter 2. Here he now launches into this pastoral application. And he uses a play on words. Okay, look at verse 11. He calls them foreigners and exiles. And then he he, he describes this command immediately in the next phrase, abstain from sinful desires. Now, let let me explain that word abstain for a moment. It means to avoid contact or stay a long ways away from something. He's saying essentially, as foreigners and exiles, if you are distant from this world, if you're a foreigner here, Then keep your distance from the desires of this world. If this isn't your home, why are you living like it is? Abstain from those things, get yourself far away from them. He says, We're set apart, we're refugees in this place, we're we're exiles, we're awaiting the kingdom of heaven where our citizenship really belongs. And friends, the key here and why he says this, why he says we need to make sure that those things are, we got those things in alignment, is he says you have to recognize there's a battle going on. Do you see how he finishes the sentence here? He says, abstain from sinful desires, and then listen, which wage war against your soul. Make no mistake. The pursuit of your fleshly sinful desires will destroy you. This is what Peter's describing. We can't play around with loving the world and sort of pretending like we're it's okay to do those things and he he says you got to stay away, you got to have a uh, you got to realize you're from a different kingdom. It's similar to what James says in James chapter 4 verse 4. He says, "Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God?" Or as Jesus himself says in John 12, Anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Friends, these are pretty drastic. Peter is writing, you gotta understand the context here, what Peter's writing in. Peter is writing to Christians in the Roman Empire who are faced with the exact same question we're faced with today Who is your Lord? Who's your King? Who do you look for for salvation? Whose side are you on? See, there's a Christian apologist and writer named Oz Guinness. And I'd recommend, he has a book that I recommended in your notes that's that's fantastic. And he posed this same question in this book called Impossible People. And this is what he says. You'll see it on the screen here. He says, is Jesus Lord? Or are the forces of advanced modernity Lord? He said the church that cannot say no to all that contradicts the Lord Jesus is a church that is well down the road to cultural defeat and captivity. But the courage to say no has to be followed by an equally clear and courageous and constructive yes to the Lord himself, to his gospel, and his vision of life humanity in the future, so that Christians can live differently, can be seen to live differently and live better than the world today. So we have to, friends, we have to face this question, who is your Lord? When we consider politics and civic engagement, who really is your Savior? The battle for your soul is waged even in this most fundamental question. Is Jesus really the king? And do you find your most fundamental allegiance to him in his kingdom? This is the very same question Peter poses to these believers in the Roman Empire. So, so, So here's the question to follow. What's our posture? Go back to verses 12 and following. Look at what he describes here. Okay, what's our posture? In verse 12 and and the following verses, Peter gives this practical application, okay? He says, live good lives that align with Christ and his kingdom. Even if people accuse you of being backwards or bigoted or narrow-minded, he said, you live the way that God wants you to. He says one of the key ways to do this, and sort of maybe a backward way that we wouldn't think, is to submit yourself to the authorities that God has instituted living among the nations of this world with exemplary witness to who our Lord and Savior truly is. In other words, according to Peter, our posture is prophetic presence. I want you to consider in what ways you may have a prophetic presence in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your city. See, when we choose to live under the lordship of Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, in cities, and nation, people may accuse us of doing wrong because we belong to a kingdom that's not of this world. But friends, don't grow weary in this. Don't compromise and play by the world's rules and use the world's tactics. Our posture is to remain steadfast, to live as a contrast to the world to point ahead to the coming kingdom of god and persevere in what is right to prophetically as peter says silence the talk the ignorant talk of foolish people by how you follow christ okay so that's describing our posture now let's let's pivot for a moment Okay, our posture is prophetic presence. That's what God's called us to do as his ambassadors. Let's step for a moment now to Romans 13 and talk about the purpose of why God has instituted civic authorities. So let's talk about the purpose of government. So in your Bible, go to the left now, over to Romans. The, book of, the letter to, to the Roman church was written by Paul. And there they are, right in the seat of Roman government. And he writes to them about what the purpose is of these governing authorities. Now, I simply want to read this passage and then show you how the Apostle Paul describes the role of government and then the role of the governed. And they are in parallel with each other in this passage. So let's read. Follow along as I read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority... Except that, that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has, institu- has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. In this passage, Paul provides an insight into the godly purpose of human government. And if you're like me, I'm sure when you read this, you can see that there's some nuances and some messiness involved in the actual outliving of this reality. Okay, But what Paul is doing is he's helping to understand and put in parallel the role of government and then the role of the governed and how it's supposed to work together. And so look at this slide, okay, if you just go the next couple clicks there, Nathan, these, the, the, the passage here is written in parallel on purpose. Because you're going to see here what Paul describes is what it means to govern well, which is that those who govern need to recognize that their authority comes from God. They don't just conjure it up of themselves. That's in verse 1. That their job is to commend those who do right. That their job is to punish those who do wrong. That their job is to collect the necessary taxes in order for society to function. That's what it means to govern well. And on the other side, it's matched by a calling for those who are governed. To recognize that governmental authorities come from God. To do what is right so that their commendation may be seen. To don't do what is wrong because the government doesn't bear the sword for no reason, as Paul says, and then to pay the necessary taxes for things to function. Can you see how Paul lays these out in parallel for each, uh, alongside each other on purpose? See, this is, this is the design of the role of what government is supposed to be and for those who are governed and how they work in tandem to function and bring stability and peace to human society. Now, again, you can know how that messy that gets in practical reality. Now, these ideals, these basics, do not describe other features of exactly how these things are carried out. So, Paul doesn't necessarily go there. But that's not Paul's point. Friends, this is Paul's point. God has established human governmental authorities for the good of people. Of course, that gets twisted, but this is the point of why they exist. And what Paul is describing is, to these Christians in the heart of the Roman Empire, just because you're a Christian and you belong to the kingdom of heaven doesn't mean that you can shun your civic duty. You have a duty in this situation. Be an exemplary citizen of your earthly nation, even as you await your heavenly home, even in the midst of the turmoil that can happen when these ideals are not met. Now, these are, again, they're pretty stark words to believers in the city of Rome because I don't know if you realize when this letter was written, the ruler of the Roman Empire at this time was the Emperor Nero. And if you know who the Emperor Nero was, he is probably the most notoriously brutal, corrupt, and paranoid dictator that ever lived. And so Paul is saying, be subject to the governing authorities, even the emperor, Really? Nero? See, some commentators point out that Paul doesn't, we have to be careful about the wording that's in this passage. He doesn't call these believers to blind obedience to the Romans. He doesn't even use the word obey. Rather, it's a willing submission to live within the governing structures of that nation, just like the calling for us, even if they're imperfect. And yes, we're going to find ourselves confronted with laws or confronted with ways of thinking or confronted with values that don't align with God's kingdom. And this is why we have to think about the nuances of this. This is why we need to move on to our final passage, which helps us understand by an illustration in the early church, our perspective on government, especially when it comes to discerning when and how we take a stand against governing rulers that, will, that want us to go against our faith. So, go to Acts chapter 4. I want to illustrate now what's our perspective, especially when it gets messy. Acts chapter 4. This is right at the beginning of the church. And you're going to see the the disciples immediately finding themselves at odds with the governing authorities as they proclaim Christ. And this passage is an illustration of how the early church handled opposition. We're going to be opposed when you assert the lordship of Jesus Christ in this world. We'll face opposition, especially sometimes often from governing authorities. And so here's what's happening in this passage. Peter had just healed a man who'd been paralyzed since birth. And then he, this crowd gathers to see this man who was walking and, and who, who had never walked. And, and so now he, he's publicly preaching the gospel. And now Peter and the Apostle John are confronted by the governing authorities of Jerusalem after this miracle. And so listen to how this story unfolds. Pick it up in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verse 1. And we're going to read through verse 22. Listen to the story. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see that the man who had, who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speak about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Friends, what happened here to Peter... And John is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. If you recall what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, as he's speaking to his disciples, as he sends them out, he says these words. He says, Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, Jesus says, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you'll be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Can you see that in Peter's words? As he stands before the Sanhedrin and declares that Jesus is King. This account in Acts 4 is an illustration of what it looks like when Christians continue to, to, to do good in the face of opposition in the public square. And we will often find ourselves at odds with the world. And this should be no shock. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So our perspective is this. And these are the, exact, these are the words of Peter we will do what is right in God's eyes. No matter the cost, when you think about living in this world and participating in, in life out in the, in the public square, no matter the cost, in this illustrated story of, of Acts 4, we know and we see that no matter the cost, no matter what station we're in, no matter what God gives us in opportunities to proclaim his name, That we'll do what's right in his eyes. And we know that Jesus has promised he will never leave us nor forsake us. He'll give us the words to say. And when we stick to our exclusive allegiance to him. We'll have opportunities just like Peter to speak his name in the public square. And when we do so. Let me leave you with these two encouragements. Because we want to do it like Jesus did. First, to ensure that we're a a prophetic witness following in Jesus' footsteps, the first encouragement I want to give is be full of grace and truth. Be full of grace and truth, as in John 1, 14. What we need to do, friends, is to show the world, through your words and actions, what Jesus is like. Be gracious and loving But also never compromising on the truth. As Jesus came full of grace and truth, this is what we need to embody. We don't use the truth as a hammer to destroy people. We're also not so loving and gracious that we forget what is true. You embody both of them in their fullness. Full of grace and truth. Just like our Savior. And the second reminder or encouragement is do this with gentleness and respect. 1st Peter, okay, we just read from 1st Peter chapter 2, the very next chapter in chapter 13 verse 15. Peter says, "Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have." But he says, "Do this with gentleness and respect." Be certain that you don't get down in the gutter with everyone else. Help others see and hear and know what Jesus is like through your words and actions, through your gentleness and respect. In these ways, we'll be a prophetic presence in civic life. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, offer ourselves to you we recognize that when we walk out these doors and we live in our community, in our state, in our nation, things are complex. Things uh, 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 we often and we we frequently see things that go against you and your kingdom and the values of the way that you've called us to live in your design. Lord, we want to walk in faithfulness with you in the midst of that complexity with grace and truth, with gentleness and respect, and with a prophetic presence in whatever place you've called us, whatever role you've given us, whatever a power we have to vote, whatever things that you put in front of us, Lord, to bring your kingdom to bear. And yet we recognize the limitations of that and the temporal reality of the kingdoms of this world, and we declare that you alone are the real king. And that your kingdom, we look ahead to your kingdom with anticipation and joy. We know that you are Lord of all and our allegiance is only to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.